Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 8th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal ruled that the costs of a sub-Rosa investigation leading to a successful fraud conviction was wasteful and unnecessary. Here's what happened in the case of People versus Sparkle Sky Bevins. In May 2012, a state fund claims adjuster became suspicious that the claimant Sparkle Sky Bivens was submitting a fraudulent claim. The SIU department needed to surveil Bevins, but because it has no internal surveilling resources, it hired Paul Chance Investigations, a third-party investigator, to surveil Bivens. Chance deployed a team of four investigators to surveil and videotape her activities over several days. The state fund testified that although normally investigations require only one investigator, occasionally circumstances warrant a team of investigators. Chance recommended it surveil Bivens with a team rather than an individual investigator because Bivens lived in a crowded area and was a fast driver and difficult to target and follow in traffic. Investigators eventually caught Bivens on film engaging activities she alleged she could not do. The state fund consequently terminated her disability pay, uh, payments after submitting the subrosa to a doctor who then said she was not disabled. But her attorney requested the state fund to reinstate her disability payments. So the fund spent an additional $11,000 looking into the reinstating the benefits. But it concluded its original decision to terminate the payment was correct. At the conclusion of the investigation, the state fund determined that Bivens had defrauded them in the amount of $4,000. The district attorney filed a complaint in 2013 for three counts of insurance fraud and one count of grand theft. Bivens pleaded guilty to one count of felony insurance fraud in exchange for reducing her felony to a misdemeanor if she completed community service and restitutions. Bivens completed her community service and paid the fund $4,000, and the court reduced her sentence to a misdemeanor. But at the restitution hearing, the state fund argued it was entitled to more than $34,000 in additional restitution for its investigative costs. The court reduced the state fund's requested restitution for investigation costs to only $4,000. The people appealed, and the Court of Appeals sustained the reduction in the unpublished case of People v. Bivens. The court noted that trial courts have broad discretion to order victim restitution, and an order will not be reversed if there is a factual and rational basis. Here, the trial court had compelling and extraordinary reasons for not granting the state fund's full restitution because the amount was unreasonably high. The state fund incurred approximately $34,000 in investigative expenses, more than eight and a half times the $4,000 that Bivens stole. The trial court noted that this type of expensive and extensive counter-surveillance is more appropriate for the likes of the Medellin cartel. The Court of Appeal concluded that the state fund makes no compelling argument that this amount was necessary to uncover the fraud or 
to more significantly substantiate it. As a quasi-state agency, the state fund has a duty not to create waste and, further investigating a case it already determined to be fraud and had turned over to law enforcement, is wasteful. Uber Technologies' message to the judge who must approve its $100 million class action settlement with drivers is clear. Take it or leave it. Indeed, the closely watched class action will have major ramifications in employment and workers' compensation law with respect to the classification of gig economy workers as independent contractors or not. And this case is an escalating game of courtroom brinkmanship. Uber has hit what may be an impasse with U.S. District Judge Edward Chen, who presides over the federal class action suit pending in San Francisco. It demands that as part of the settlement, the judge erase his prior order intended to protect the ride-hailing company's drivers. And observers say Uber is almost daring the judge Chen to go against its wishes. Uber all but says that if he does not treat the issue the way it wants, it will walk away from the deal. That gives the San Francisco judge the choice of approving what he sees as a flawed agreement or sending lawyers back to the bargaining table knowing that the settlement is likely to fall apart. That would leave more than 350,000 drivers in California and Massachusetts with nothing to show for three years of litigation. Uber wins either way because the settlement will let the world's most valuable technology startup escape with a relatively small financial sacrifice and only minor tweaks to its business model keeping drivers classified as independent contractors instead of employees. If the deal is not approved now, Uber may get a favorable appeals court ruling any day that will give it the upper hand in any further negotiations. The end result may be that the case once seen as the most likely to upend the gig economy's no-guarantees work rules could instead embolden Uber and other companies facing similar lawsuits to dig in their heels. The turning point that shifted the momentum in Uber's favor was a June appeals court hearing in the company's challenge to a ruling by Chen that undermined its ability to limit lawsuits. While the appeals court hasn't ruled, the panel gave strong hints it may allow the company to enforce arbitration agreements prohibiting the vast majority of its drivers from joining class action lawsuits. Uber argued in court filings that Chen's bizarre requirements were an illegal intrusion into its business and would convey an inappropriate message that drivers should opt out of arbitration. Uber and the drivers agreed as part of the proposed settlement that the judge's December order must be wiped from the record. Judge Chen has said undoing his order might strip some drivers of their legal rights. And Uber has refused to budge, saying that provision is critical to preserving the settlement. Uber's lawyers say that the company has the right to walk away from the deal unless and until the court vacates its prior order and allows it to distribute and enforce its 2015 arbitration agreement to all drivers nationwide. 
Dozens of drivers and their lawyers claimed the deal lets Uber off the hook too easily, with drivers forfeiting their demand for employee status and a chance to win hundreds of millions of dollars at trial as compensation for unpaid tips and expenses. An Irvine medical device company settled a pending civil claim after its executives were convicted in a related criminal case. Medical device manufacturer Acclarent Incorporated is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. It has agreed to pay $18 million to resolve allegations that the company marketed and distributed its Sinus Spacer product for use as a drug delivery device without FDA approval of that use. The settlement came shortly after its former chief executive officer, William, William Facto, and former vice president of sales, Patrick Fabian, were convicted following a six-week jury trial of 10 misdemeanor counts. The company specializes in the development of minimally invasive ear, nose, and throat technologies. This case surrounded the marketing and distribution of a sinus spacer known as the Relieva Stratus Microflow Spacer. The FDA approved the spacer in 2006 for use in maintaining sinus integrity during a two-week period post-surgery. However, a clarent allegedly marketed the spacer as a prescription corticosteroid delivery device. Off-label marketing is a common scheme used to increase revenue from pharmaceutical drug or device sales and such activity violates federal law. When healthcare professionals bill government funded health care programs like Medicare for products and services that are not FDA approved, each bill becomes a false claim. In 2006, a clarent received FDA clearance to market the Stratus as a spacer to be used only with saline to maintain sinus openings following surgery. The government alleged that a clarent marketed the Stratus as a drug delivery device even after the FDA rejected the company's 2007 request to expand the approved uses for the Stratus. A clarent employees trained physicians using a video that demonstrated the Stratus being used for off-label drug delivery. By May 2013, Eclarent discontinued all sales of the Stratus, which is no longer commercially available in the United States. In 2011, former Eclarent ENT consultant Melena Lakoski filed a civil lawsuit against Eclarent as a whistleblower under the False Claims Act, alleging the off-label marketing. She will receive approximately $3.5 million from the settlement as the whistleblower. The parents of a Santa Barbara police officer have filed a lawsuit accusing the city of causing the demise of their son. They claim he drank himself to death after being denied workers' compensation for his post-traumatic stress disorder claim. Their son, David Andouri, a 13-year police veteran died of liver failure due to drinking in excess while attempting to self-medicate his PTSD. They claim that stemmed from his job, from which he was discharged because he filed for workers' comp benefits. Court filings say his duties as a crime scene investigator routinely consisted of being called to gruesome situations. 
Mr. Anduri began suffering from severe depression, anxiety, headaches, and tremors after many disturbing situations. After he experienced an anxiety attack while driving in 2013, he filed for workers' comp benefits. He went to a doctor the city recommended to him and was diagnosed with PTSD stemming from his job as a police officer. The city had him see another physician who also diagnosed him in a similar way and then accepted his claim, placing Mr. Anduri on paid leave. But they alleged the city, without any medical evidence to do so, denied his claim and told him that he would have to pay them back with his accrued vacation and sick time. Anduri then saw the city's doctor for a second time, who said his conditions had worsened since his initial visit in 2013. The parents alleged that he was unable to afford medical insurance and thus began drinking alcohol to block his PTSD symptoms. He was eventually hospitalized for acute liver failure and died while in coma 17 days later. In their wrongful death lawsuit, his parents seek an array of damages for the loss of their son. At first glance, this litigation would seem to have an uphill battle to overcome the exclusive remedy protections of workers' compensation law, as well as the exclusive jurisdiction of the WCAB to adjudicate all matters pertaining to workers' compensation claims. If successful, this suit would certainly be an expansion of the exceptions to the exclusive remedy protection for employers. And now our crime report. There is now a final chapter on ex-state Senator Leland Yee's workers' compensation corruption case. Leland Yee was indicted for corruption in office, which included a 2013 incident in which Yee agreed to take $60,000, which he believed was coming from a National Football League team owner, in exchange for his and another senator's vote on a bill dealing with workers' compensation for professional athletes. In February 2016, Yee was sentenced to five years in federal prison following his guilty pleas in that case. He was ensnared by an FBI investigation that led to the convictions of Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow, a reputed Chinatown mobster, Keith Jackson, a former school board president and fundraiser for Lee, and others. The mobster, Kwong Chung Chow, also known as Shrimp Boy, was sentenced on August 4 to life in prison following his convictions for racketeering, murder, money laundering, and conspiracy charges. 55-year-old Chow served as the Dragon Head, or leader, of the San Francisco-based Chi Kung Tong organization. <clears throat> In January 2016, a federal jury found Chow guilty of criminal activities in the connection with the racketeering organization and additional conspiracies. In all, Chow was charged with 162 counts, including murder. Chow was charged with and convicted of arranging the murder of Alan Lung and conspiring with others to murder Jim Tot Kong. The jury found Chow guilty of every one of the 162 charges leveled against him. In sentencing Chow, the federal judge said the murder in this case was particularly callous because it was the removal of an obstacle to Chow's ascension to power. Chow was sentenced to serve the rest of his life in prison. 
The judge also issued an order enjoining Chow and others from profiting from his life's story. Chow has been in custody since his arrest in March 2014 and will begin serving his life sentence immediately. Joseph Medrano was an insurance broker and the founder, owner, and president of the company known as Insurance Management Corporation. A publicly traded company known as iPass Incorporated retained him as its insurance broker. In late 2008, iPass uh, renewed its workers' compensation and domestic package insurance with travelers and agreed to a gross premium that included all commissions and fees to IMC for this insurance. During a meeting with Medrano, he represented to the insured that he had shopped more than 15 insurance companies for its DNO policy, and only one company was interested in providing a quote. The company was uncomfortable with his assertion, so they checked with Lockton, a competing insurance broker. Over the course of the next several days, Lockton called the other insurance companies and learned that they had never been approached by Medrano as he had claimed. Some of the companies said they would have entertained the idea of meeting with iPass and might have offered a competing bid. Lockton also reviewed iPass's DNO policy and noticed that he had been collecting full commission in addition to charging a $50,000 broker fee. Ultimately, iPass changed their broker to Lockton for all insurance except for the traveler's policy that had previously been written. Later, iPass learned that Travelers was getting ready to cancel its workers' compensation and domestic package insurance because it had not received all of the premium payments it had given. As a result, iPass made a duplicate premium payment to Travelers, this time through Lockton, so that it would not lose coverage. When Madrano was asked to refund the premium it had paid him for Travelers, he responded that his finances had suffered significantly in the economic downturn and he no longer had the money. During the broker's criminal trial, the prosecutor presented evidence that Madrano retained funds in a similar way from another one of its brokerage clients. After Medrano's trial, the jury deliberated for less than a day and reached a verdict finding him guilty of grand theft by embezzlement. The trial court sentenced him to county jail for a total of three years with 18 months suspended. Medrano appealed, arguing that the trial court abused its discretion when it admitted evidence of his prior uncharged misconduct against the other company. The Court of Appeal rejected his argument in the unpublished case. The Supreme Court has long recognized that if a person acts similarly in similar situations, he probably harbors the same intent in each instance, and that such prior conduct may be relevant circumstantial evidence of the actor's most recent intent. Banner Health announced that it is mailing letters to 3.7 million patients and others related to a cyber attack. Banner says it has launched an investigation, hired a leading forensics firm, took steps to block the cyber attackers, and contacted law enforcement. 
On July 13, Banner learned that the cyber attackers may have gained unauthorized access to patient information, health plan member and beneficiary information, as well as information about physician and healthcare providers. Information may have included names, birth dates, addresses, physicians' names, and possibly health insurance information and social security numbers. Officials claim that roughly one out of every three Americans had their health care records compromised and most are completely unaware. Such hacks give criminals a wealth of personal information that, unlike a credit card number, can last forever. Many of those records show up for sale on the dark web where hackers openly advertise themselves and what they've stolen. Currently, one site offers fresh healthcare profiles stolen last year in California. Despite hacks that have targeted high-profile retailers like Target and entertainment giant Sony Pictures, security experts are warning of a more prized target, medical records. Workers' compensation claim offices are also a repository of medical records, as well as the professionals that support them, such as their law firms. One might suspect that sooner or later hackers will reach deeper into the smaller caches of prized healthcare data. Banner Health is offering a free one year membership in monitoring services to those who were affected by this incident. It says it deeply regrets any inconvenience this may have caused. Banner Health is one of the largest nonprofit healthcare systems in the country and has operations in California. And in regulatory news, in California, more than 220 insurance companies provide workers' compensation insurance coverage to nearly 700,000 employers. The system delivers medical and wage replacement benefits to almost 800,000 injured workers and their families annually. The Workers' Compensation Insurance Rating Bureau of California is the licensed rating organization for workers' compensation and is the California Insurance Commissioner's designated statistical agent. As such, the WCIRB monitors the health of the workers' compensation insurance system and makes its data and analysis available to system stakeholders and public policymakers. The WCIRB has released its 2016 State of the California Workers' Compensation Insurance System report. The report says that the growth in California written premiums has slowed compared to that of prior years as insurer rate increases have moderated. Recent increases in indemnity claim frequency that are counter to trends in other states are largely driven by increases in the Los Angeles Basin Area. The Los Angeles Basin Area was over 30% higher than the statewide average. Comparatively, indemnity claim frequencies in the Bay Area was approximately 15% lower. Despite provisions of SB 863, which intended to reduce frictional costs, average allocated lost adjustment expenses in California have increased by 24% since 2012. Average allocated loss adjustment expenses costs are over 20% higher in the Los Angeles Basin area at almost twice the countrywide median. The average California medical benefit per claim remains among the highest in the country, with costs more than 60% above the countrywide median. 
The full report is available in the research and analysis section of the WCIRB website. The Department of Industrial Relations reminds public works contractors and subcontractors to submit certified payroll records by using the DIR's online system. The Labor Commissioner will resume enforcement of this requirement this August. Public works in general refers to the construction and related work paid for in whole or in part out of public funds. It can include pre-construction and post-construction activities related to a public works project. All workers employed on public works projects must be paid the prevailing wage determined by the directors of the DIR according to the type of work and location of the project. The prevailing wage rates are usually but not always based on rates and specified in collective bargaining agreements. A public works contractor is anyone who bids on or enters into a contract to perform work that requires the payment of prevailing wages. All contractors and subcontractors working on public works projects must submit electronic certified payroll records to the Labor Commissioner. The Labor Commissioner has exempted projects monitored by some legacy labor compliance programs. To learn about the DIR's online reporting system, those affected are invited to consult the updated Certified Payroll Reporting reporting User Guides or watch the new online tutorials. Contractors can also find answers to questions about the improvements on the DIR's Frequently Asked Questions page. The Public Works community is also invited to subscribe to email alerts on Public Works topics, DIR's press releases, and other departmental updates. And in medical news, a new wave of failures among Obamacare's nonprofit health insurers is disrupting coverage for thousands of enrollees. Four Obamacare co-ops have failed due to financial problems since the beginning of this year. Just seven of the original 23 co-ops now remain. And all that failure has been pricey. Taxpayers are out $1.7 billion in federal loans that these co-ops will never repay. Mismanagement, mispricing, low enrollment, and high enrollment have all been blamed for the co-op's failure. But Obamacare itself is responsible for the most recent co-op bankruptcies. As part of its effort to fix the individual insurance market, Obamacare banned insurers from pricing coverage based on risk. Instead, they have to take all comers and charge each one no more than three times what they charge anyone else. To make the math for this work, Obamacare created a series of cross-subsidies called risk adjustment. Insurers who attracted less expensive, healthier-than-average enrollees were supposed to pay into a fund that would redistribute money to those who enrolled costlier, sicker-than-average patients. Several co-ops ended up facing big risk-adjustment bills, even though they were losing money. For example, Oregon's Health Co-op, which lost $18 million last year, had hoped to get $5 million from the risk-adjustment program. But instead, it received a $900,000 bill, and, unsurprisingly, it closed up shop. 
The latest round of failures poses an even thornier problem than earlier cases because coverage is now being disrupted in the middle of the policy year. That can increase patients' out-of-pocket costs and make it harder to keep the same doctors. Some theorize that Obamacare would remove marginal claims from workers' compensation systems, but now the reverse may be the case instead. An increase in marginal or questionable workers' compensation claims may occur. In Illinois, Oregon, and Ohio, a combined total of about 92,000 people are being forced to find a new plan. A co-op in a fourth state, Connecticut, will last until the end of the year. Now, just seven co-ops remain. Those seven all lost money last year and may yet go out of business before the calendar turns to 2017. For the seven co-ops left to survive, they will have to increase their costs of premiums. And it's not only co-ops that have struggled to make money. Oscar, a startup insurance company serving New York and New Jersey, lost $105 million in 2015. United Health Group said the company expects to lose more than $1 billion from its exchange business, which is $650 million in 2016 and $475 million in 2015. The company, which is the nation's largest insurer, decided to pull out of at least 26 of the 34 exchanges. It offered coverage last year after warning the marketplaces were a risky investment. And Healthcare Service Corporation, which operates Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in five states, reported losses totaling nearly $70 million in 2015. The company lost over $281 million in 2014. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.